Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. brings us to step two, uh, which is to acknowledge the breadth and impact of my addiction. Now you may say, isn't, isn't admitting that I have a problem that I'm not going to overcome without God the same thing as acknowledging the breadth uh, and impact of that struggle? And I would say no. Uh, it, it reminds me when, when my kids come to me uh, and, and they, they admit uh, and they say, Papa, we have a little problem. And at that moment, the first thing I want to know, what is it? I'll determine whether it's little. Uh, what, what's going on? Uh, it, there are times when we can admit, but we don't acknowledge. Uh, so maybe we, we start with this question. If you continued for the next five to ten years on the course that you're on right now, where would you be? That's what we want to look at in this step. If the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. And, and, and it has a trajectory. It's going somewhere. It doesn't stay put. Life tends to either get better or get worse. It doesn't tend to stay the same. Where would that place you? And it's at the end of this step uh, that we're going to ask you to decide, is it worth it? Uh, not in kind of a reactionary way, where in a moment of desperation where you've done something, you're like, I can't believe it's been this bad. I'm really going to change this time. But in a moment of sober assessment of my life where I look at it and say, no, do, is this something I need to change or not? And so one of the things that we look at is history. And so think with me about a rainbow. Not one of the cute little rainbows that's in a children's book, uh, in a children's book, you know, there's kind of clear, bright stripes between the colors and uh, red, orange, yellow. I mean, it's, it's, it's clear when they change. When you look at a rainbow in the sky, it's a little harder to tell the difference when one color bleeds into another. That's often what it's like uh, with addiction. When use becomes abuse, becomes dependent... It's kind of clear in the middle of the stripes where it is, but when it's happening, it, it, and we're less concerned with where those precise changes happen. We don't want to use that as an excuse for not looking at the major changes uh, that have happened. And so some of the questions we would encourage you to talk through um, with a mentor, a sponsor, with a recovery group. Uh, when did you start using being specific for maybe each of the substances that have become addictive. Maybe more important, when did you stop being honest? What pain were you avoiding? Um, you know, when did being sober start to feel less normal? You know, at some point, being engaged in addiction felt more normal than being sober. That began to feel weird. When was that? Um, when did your addiction begin to change your friends? When did it begin to change your daily routine? 
When did you begin to notice a sense of shame coming into your life and that there were certain groups of people that you didn't feel like you belonged with anymore because of what was going on? Now, what were the key events? Those moments when you realized, oh, things are changing. This is bad. Uh, what are your drinking rules? Uh, Carlo Di Clemente again. He says, uh, drinkers, for example, have their own definitions of what addiction is. Uh, of the amount of drinking or pattern they consider to be out of control. Uh, if the individual's drinking does not meet that definition, he or she believes that it's under control. Uh, such definitions might include drinking before noon. That's what addicts do. Addicts drink before noon. If I'm not drinking before noon, I can't be an addict. Uh, drinking hard liquor instead of beer because nobody gets addicted to beer, only liquor. Uh, drinking alone instead of uh, at bars. As long as I'm in public, I don't have a problem. You know, what were the rules? What were the definitions uh, that you used uh, that in some kind of technicality way convinced you that you didn't have a problem? What we want our G4 groups to be is a place where you can be honest about those things uh, without a sense of shame. Because uh, one of the things that I frequently say is, you know, I've never lost an argument in my own head. Whenever I have an argument in my head, I always win. It always makes sense to me. I only lose when those words come out of my mouth and they're not half as convincing to my wife as they were when they were inside of my head. That's the way a lot of the stuff we just talked about was. When it's just bouncing around in our head, it totally makes sense. Nah, we got this. We say it out loud to somebody else. Somebody who we know cares and understands and is committed uh, to our freedom. It doesn't make sense anymore. That's what we want. Now another part of history, and we also want the positive part of the history. Because you know, one of the things that we'll learn about uh, relapse, every relapse is a learning opportunity. We're going to learn good stuff every time we slip about how not to slip again if we'll just keep our head up. And so what are the longest period of times that you've been sober? What were the most important factors? What relationships and interests began to emerge during that time? Let's talk about those things too. Um, but another thing in understanding the breadth and impact of our struggle is getting a feel for how the addiction has impacted me. Now, when it comes to physical effects, uh, almost always you talk about the negative health effects of addiction and people can come up with the positive effects for whatever it is uh, that their substance is. Uh, and um, Mark Shuckett, uh, it's a really kind of academic book on addiction, uh, but I just wanted to preview that I read a really uh, academic book. Uh, he said, in any event, all the data agrees. Uh, consumption of three drinks per day offer no more benefits than those who observe one or two. Uh, and at four drinks per day, the risk of heart disease, cancer, as well as any other life-threatening problems increase significantly. And so even if there is a bell curve of benefit for whatever your uh, substance of choice is, it is a bell curve. And if we're using it in such a way that the backside gets slippery and we keep going to that point of abuse, it just makes sense to say, stay off the curve, stay off the slope. Uh, don't do that. And when we begin to look at the physical symptoms that get involved, uh, kidneys and liver, any part of your body that serves as a filter is going to be significantly negatively impacted uh, by alcohol or drugs. Uh, heart, 
you know, just whether we're taking a sedative or a stimulant, uh, we are medically changing the rhythm of our heart on a regular basis. That is not good. Lungs, uh, very much affected, uh, especially if we're smoking. Um, immune system. One of the first places that your body pulls energy reserves from when it's under stress and addiction puts all kinds of stress on your body is the immune system. Uh, there, the illustration that I go to uh, is my wife's hair dryer. Uh, whenever she's in the bathroom and she's getting beautiful for the day and she turns the hair dryer on, the lights dim. Because the power surge that has to go into the hair dryer has to come from somewhere. So it comes from the lights. When our body is under stress, one of the first places that dim is the immune system. Uh, exposure to disease, uh, just because hygiene and the context that we're in don't uh, usually tend to be great uh, when we're under the influence of substance. Uh, testosterone for men, uh, the immune system thing is very much what happens with testosterone. The brain, this is the complete reason addictions work. Uh, because they change the functioning of our brain. Uh, stomach. Anything that you take in that burns, burns all the way through. And so if you're taking a shot of whiskey and it burns when you take it, uh, the burning doesn't stop uh, when you swallow. Uh, it is burning all the way down. Uh, tooth deterioration. This is both dry mouth, uh, grinding of teeth. Um, then there's the emotional cognitive effects. Uh, and here I'm going to give a bit of an imperfect metaphor, uh, but I think it's a useful imperfect metaphor. You know, if you want to think of our brain, our brain doesn't have one control center. Sometimes we like to think of our brain as if it's the control center for all of life, as if, you know, there's kind of one little guy up here uh, directing everything. Um, our brain has multiple control centers. Uh, and just to make it simple, we could say there's the control center of emotion, the control center of reason, the control center of rewards. Uh, and when life is going right, uh, those are kind of like the three branches of the United States government, and they hold each other in balance with checks and balances between them. In the midst of addiction, uh, emotion and reward uh, mutiny uh, over reason. And part of what we're after is trying to get reason back to its place in the balance of power. And if I could give you a metaphor there. Think about the teenager who had too much freedom in their preteen years. You know, parents were permissive and kind of let them do things that they ought not do. And so if freedom should look like this, for them, freedom looked like that. And then when things start to get out of control and the parents try to bring that teenager back, uh, to what would be a proportional amount of freedom for their life. How does that feel? Well, it feels like you're treating me like a child. Because I've had more freedom, more free reign than this. Oftentimes, that's what it feels like in the midst of overcoming addiction. Uh, emotion and reward have had free reign. And when we try to bring them back to a more balanced place of where they would be uh, in a healthy life, uh, it feels like undue uh, restriction. Um, but what are some of the uh, emotional and cognitive effects? Uh, depression. Uh, alcohol and many other uh, substances, they are depressants. Uh, if we are consuming massive quantities of depressants, we should expect to 
to experience depression, anxiety. If our substance of choice is a stimulant and we are artificially stimulating our body on a regular basis, we should expect a generalized anxiety. Uh, Paranoia. Again, partly, uh, this would have to do with just guilt uh, and forever aggravating our conscience. Uh, But there's another aspect to that. One of the regions of the brain that drugs and alcohol often impair is that frontal lobe. And part of what goes on in that area is reality testing. You know, that part of our brain that helps us know is this reasonable, unreasonable. uh, And as we deteriorate that part of our brain, it becomes harder to tell what is a rational fear from an irrational fear. Um, Again, neuroplasticity, just to kind of show you I use big words. Uh, The brain can be restored over a time of healthy living. It's not as if that's a permanent thing that can't be corrected. Uh, But in the throes of addiction, uh, it is very easy to be given to uh, paranoid, superstitious thinking uh, just because the part of our brain that would battle that has been weakened by the addiction. Uh, Shame. uh, As this behavior begins to feel like more of who we are, uh, all or nothing thinking. This is part that has some of the biggest relational disruption. Uh, And it also accounts for the motivational fluctuation. Uh, You know, times when we're absolutely, we're going to change, and then, no, this is too much, I can never do it. Um, The degree to which we give ourselves to all or nothing thinking, because we live in the high, high of the high, and the low, low of the after, we, we just get caught in this mindset of extremes. A distorted sense of time. You know, addiction is really about immediacy. Uh, and some of what I was reading for this, they were talking about a, um, you know, they were using the example, they totally made up a drug, I forgot the name that they, uh, that they gave to this particular drug, uh, but they said if they could invent a drug, and this drug was incredibly cheap, and its high was very pleasant, and the duration of the high was very long, but the onset of the effect didn't begin until 24 hours after you took it. They said nobody would buy it. Even if it was cheap and had a nice high that lasted for a long time so that you could stay where you wanted to be for as long as, um, you know, longer than the average drug at a cheap price, it's like it wouldn't have a place in the marketplace because of the delay in onset. And so, so much of addiction is about immediacy. Uh, and that, that affects how even recovery, recovery isn't a quick thing, and so we commit to it, and we want it to work, and then it, it doesn't. In the time frame that we're used to things working, negative emotional intolerance, this just means we become intolerant of unpleasant emotions. That's what addiction is all about. Addiction is all about feeling good or feeling numb as much as we can. We just, we can't tolerate feeling bad. Uh, And a lot of life is about learning from those unpleasant experiences. And so we have to regain a, a negative emotion tolerance, an inflated sense of normal. You know, what we see when we look at these cognitive uh, and emotional effects 
uh, is what D. Clementi says. He says, the more the addictive behavior begins to replace other coping mechanisms, because we can't handle these things, we, just, we can't cope with life, the greater the probability that the individual will progress from use to abuse and then dependence. One of the defining features of abuse and dependence is that the behavior begins to take over a larger and larger role in the individual. As other coping mechanisms drop out, the individual begins to rely more and more on the addictive behavior to cope with basic problems. Then there's identity change. Anything that we do for an extended period of time is going to become part of who we are. And here we could go into this more, but the main thing that I would want to emphasize is that there is a you who does addiction. You are the host. Addiction is the parasite. Um, Part of what we are after is strengthening you uh, with the power of the gospel, the presence of the Holy Spirit, a community of people around you to become less hospitable to addiction. Uh, then there's the functional effects. Uh, addiction doesn't exist in a vacuum. It happens in space and time. It costs money. It requires planning. Uh, and so I just give you a way to do some of the math here. Uh, how much time do you give directly to your addiction? Spot time that you spend using Time that you spend high, time that you spend hungover. Planning and covering up. You know, planning, covering up, ensuring that you've got access. Uh, Let's just stop there and do the math. If you take the hours that you spend disrupted or preparing for addiction, and you subtract the amount of time that you would need to give to recovery to overcome it, addiction's always going to be a win. Actually, if I, could, if I could say it this way, it is such a win that the amount of time that you have left over becomes part of the temptation. When you begin to take out addiction from your life and the controlling and organizing presence that it has for so much of your day, you're going to have so much time left over that what to do with that free time is going to become part of what we have to figure out what to do with so that that doesn't become the reason for relapse. And so we put money there, just direct money spent, money spent because of guilt, money lost because of missed work uh, or lost because of injury or accident. Um, uh, Priorities, uh, they're less tangible, but they're just as important. Uh, What are the dreams that have died, relationships that have drifted, opportunities that have been lost? Uh, You know, what are those changes uh, that have happened in your life? Um, We'll look for just a minute at the impact on others. Uh, And this will take courage. In step four of your AA material, it talks about taking a fearless moral inventory. That's, That's, fearless is a good word. Because this is a hard thing to look at. As you get to this point in your journey, I would strongly urge you to have people around you. Because this is a spot where it is so easy to get discouraged and begin to feel a sense of shame and just want to quit. And so if you're getting to this part by video and you don't have people around you, push pause 
find a support group, go to G4, go somewhere. Uh, but there's the active offenses. Things like lying, stealing, uh, character assassination. I mean, somebody's got to be the villain. And if I'm not willing to own it, I've got to put that on somebody. Uh, then there's absence offenses. Uh, I withdraw, which is, a, in a bad sense of the word, a great catch-22. Because when I withdraw, you're either going to pursue me and then I can get mad at you for nagging and trying to control me. Or you're going to let me go. And I'm going to go, see, you don't care. Doesn't anybody care? I might as well do this because addiction is the only thing that makes me feel good. And I create this world that very much validates my addiction. Uh, there's the isolation. Uh, people in your home they know things are chaotic. They're going to be less willing to invite people over, to be social, because your unpredictability becomes a social barrier for them. The lack of dependability. They're just going to begin to organize their life as if you don't follow through on the things that you said. Uh, atmosphere changes. Uh, these are, for spouses and children, maybe some of the the most long-term damaging consequences on others. Uh, emotional confusion. You never know what response something's going to get. Uh, if you've grown up in an addictive home, many people who struggle with addiction have. Maybe you were there and you leave your socks out and you get beat for it. Uh, and so there's this much offense and this big reaction. You fail a test and because that would require more regular engagement and actually helping you learn study skills, just nothing's done about that. You run away from home, and all of a sudden, the person who's been the addict that's made home hell, now they play the martyr and they push that off on you. How are you supposed to learn a sense of emotional proportionality in that environment? Then there's the whole six degree of separation game. That when you struggle with addiction and you don't want to talk about it, then you don't want to talk about anything that's related to it. And you don't want to talk about the things that's related to what's related to it. And, and so there become all of these rules about things we just don't talk about. And they become the implicit rules of the home that we force on others. And then there's the fact that addiction replaces relationship. People can tell. There's just someone or something else that is more important than I am. This is why in a lot of your addiction literature, uh, an addiction is compared to an affair or adultery uh, if you are married. Because there is just someone who is so much more important in your world that is controlling every decision. And I don't have near as much voice as a spouse as I ought to have. And so I said at the end of step two is when we would make a big decision we would decide, is it worth it? Um, and so what I give you at the end of that, uh, it's on page 18 in your notebook, uh, is just a sheet, my commitment to change. This is where you begin to sketch your initial plan. Now, if I could tell you what is the, the most important words on this page, it's I and me and mine. This is your plan. 
Uh, we may adapt it as we go along. We're going to learn some things. We're going to learn from the notebook. We're going to learn about ourselves. Things will change as we go along. But this needs to be something uh, that you own. It, uh, and so things I want, um, changes I want to make. Um, you know, these are the things I want to do less. Uh, the most important I, reasons I want to change. What are the reasons that if you've gone through this that has stood out to you and said, this is what makes it worth it? Uh, steps I plan to take. You know, just some concrete things that initially, if I were getting serious about overcoming my addiction, you know your life. What would that be? Uh, the ways other people can help me. I write some people's name down. I write what role it is that would be most important for them to play. What I would encourage you to do when you finish this sheet, make copies of it. Take and give a copy to every person that you write down on that list. And say, I, I am committing to making changes. I don't know what the full journey looks like. Uh, if you would be willing, I would like to have you on my team of people to help me in this journey. This is where I'm starting. Um, and you can go through uh, and look at it. I would encourage you, keep a copy of this wherever you go. Uh, and bring it out uh, and look at it. 